If you keep an open mind to it, you often uncover places you can contribute more than you may have expected. Hello, and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, Rich Lesser, the CEO of Boston Consulting Group. He'll talk about the role of collaboration and curiosity in tackling challenges like the environment and how he's changed as a leader in his more than 30 years at the firm. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. Our most precious asset time that we have to invest, not just to guide our organizations, but to actually take the time to educate ourselves. Rich Lesser understands the need to invest in organization and in collaboration. He's the CEO of Boston Consulting Group, a management consulting firm with one of the largest board of directors of any company in the world. We're up around 1,500 right now. Every orientation, I start by saying, you know, each one of your vote is worth the same as mine. Rich joined Boston Consulting Group more than 30 years ago. And in that time, the prominence of challenges like the environment have shifted widely. But the methods for tackling tough problems, they remain the same. There are very complicated issues to work through. I feel it's less around awakening and more about pragmatic problem solving in a collaborative way. I caught up with Rich recently, who shared with me what leaders will need to do to make an impact on the climate. So we think there's a whole different level. We and many other firms will need to get there if we're really going to be truly net zero. He'll also share what he's learned about teaming in his three decades at the company and why a book on givers and takers so inspired him, he summoned a book club session for his executive committee. It's an incredible book. It's the one I've, in my own mental framework to work with the most. He'll talk about all that and more. But first, he'll share how BCG, Boston Consulting Group, is tackling the firm's own environmental impact. The starting point for our role in climate is what we do to improve ourselves. And last September, we made a net zero by 2030 climate commitment and to be climate positive after 2030 actually that has several components to it the first of course is to bring down our own emission as close to zero as we can get very fast using renewable electricity and other actions but the biggest part of our emissions like many companies is aviation the flying we do to connect internally but in particular to serve our clients and we committed to reduce our per fte our carbon emissions by 30% by 2025, and then to go further after that. And we committed that by 2030, we would be neutralizing all of the emissions that remain. And so we think there's a whole different level. We and many other firms will need to get there if we're really going to be truly net zero. We also committed to contribute to the world through the way that BCG does best, which is the capabilities of our teams to make a difference, and that we would invest $400 million in our teams over this decade to be able to help others around the world to accelerate their progress toward a net zero economy. Of course, then there's a ton of investment that's about helping other sectors of the economy improve. Everything from green hydrogen to the support for groups like the WEF and COP26, where we're the uh, management consultancy partner to the work we do sector by sector in aviation and steel and energy production and downstream things like food or automobiles. So we're investing huge amounts about building our capabilities, growing our team and partnering with our clients, both our uh, social sector clients and companies, hundreds of them to accelerate their progress. Mm -hmm. 
it's a big set of commitments. Some of it we know how to do, like many companies. Some of it we'll learn along the way. But but we're well on that journey and and quite and quite um, committed to it as a as a global community. So your staff is going to be a multiplier for these efforts. I think a lot of times people forget about the role that big companies have in scaling big change. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that? So the role that companies can play is much more sometimes than they realize. Of course, in two senses. First, when we work with a particularly big and complex organizations, we often realize that they don't understand how much progress they can make internally in economically viable and sometimes even very economically attractive ways. And we find over and over again that when companies map their own carbon emission curves and what the costs per ton are to abate those emissions, that there's a much higher share of their carbon emissions that they can make progress on than they probably realize. So that's very encouraging. And of course, the best practices we accumulate in helping companies on that journey enables us to be more effective in helping other companies. So I think that that collectively moves the community forward at scale. There's a second element that's also incredibly important that actually directly links to the work we've been doing with the WEF on supply chains, which is that people tend to focus on the hard to abate industries, steel or shipping or aviation or cement. And of course, it is true that it's very costly to move towards net zero in those industries. But what's often not understood is that when you take it, not from the standpoint of those sectors, but from the downstream areas that they feed, construction, automobiles, food and agriculture, when you look at it from that standpoint, we're talking very small increases in end cost to the consumer to be able to have net zero or near net zero offerings, often one to 4% cost increases, 2% for a car. So think of a 30,000 euro car produced in 2030, that would probably cost about 500 euros to make that car in a net zero way. It seems almost inconceivable when, at least it did to me when I first heard it. But when you think about it, yes, there's steel in a car and that steel will go up a lot in price, but steel is a very small amount of the total cost of a car as is the battery, as is the aluminum, as is the plastic. And so while those individual components go up a lot in cost, the total cost increase for the car is much less than people expect. And so I think that that multiplier effect, both you can go further internally than you think you can, and you can do more if you take a supply chain mindset than if you just focus on the hardest to abate sectors are both big opportunities. I do want to add as a footnote, however, To go as far and as fast as we need to, we need governments to be working with businesses and working across. That's why what the WEF does is so important, that it it brings different sectors together, the public sector, the social sector, the private sector, because if they're not working together, each will make progress on its own. None will make progress at the speed we need to make progress. Mm So to transition to true sustainability, we're going to need a system-wide reboot and new forms of collaboration. In your mind, what is needed to get groups waking up to the role that collaboration is going to be playing in the future? The good news is I think most uh, companies and governments have awakened. I don't think it's any longer a question of having them wake up. They realize they need to do it not just because it's morally the right thing to do, though though I think for many that alone could be sufficient, but from a business standpoint, if they don't embrace the challenges of climate to minimize risk and the opportunities of climate to discover and 
create and, and capture new markets, they're losing value creation potential on both the risk and the building side of the equation. And governments, of course, we hear much more talk about climate in a more serious way even than a year or two ago. What we're all still working toward is the very hard choices that need to be made, whether and how to price carbon, how to work across supply chains, how to measure consistently and accurately so that there's a currency on carbon, just like there's a currency on dollars and, and, and euros to be able to, to make markets work, how to address cross-country issues, where if one country sets higher standards than another, how do you protect the companies in the first country from, from losing their business to companies in the, in the other country? There are very complicated issues to work through, and I feel it's less around awakening and more about pragmatic problem solving in a collaborative way. And there, there's a ton of work to be got done and very hard choices to be made. I think COP26 um, will be a great step in that direction, but I think we're naive if we think it's going to solve all our issues. We're going to have a lot to work through for at least the remainder of this decade, I expect. You've talked about the importance of being in continual learning mode to make change happen. What does that look like for you, uh, especially when it comes to the climate? Anytime I talk to leaders, I start with your organizations. All our organizations need to learn at a faster pace than ever before. But the people who need to learn the most are the people at the top. And, and the risk is the highest for us because there's a natural bubble that forms, particularly around CEOs that can really get in the way of people raising hard issues with you, challenging you, wanting to bring you information that they worry you may not want to hear. And yet we're the people who most need to hear that. And, and I think there's a responsibility on all of us to say, where are we going to every year spend our own time? That's our most precious asset is the time that we have to invest, not just to guide our organizations, not just to be in contact with the rest of the world, but to actually take the time to educate ourselves. And I, I found I've never been on a steeper learning curve than I have been as CEO, which was not necessarily what I would have predicted at the start, but it's been so true. Early on, it was around digital and technology. Then it was around a whole bunch of societal issues. More recently, it was on climate and COVID both and as well as racial equity and justice topics. I feel like on every one of those, you think you understand it to a degree, but you have to realize just how much you don't know, how you have to seek out people who may not be the people you're used to interacting with day to day, uh, may not be in a part of the organization you necessarily are with all the time. You have to spend time with them. You have to get outside the walls of your own company to hear other perspectives. I think it's an essential part of any person's role in life in a world like this, but particularly the role of the most senior leaders. And how did you inform yourself differently on this topic than you might have maybe digital transformation a, a few years ago? What uh, people are you talking to or things are you reading that maybe you didn't have a need to before? I've spent a lot of time talking to client teams to understand what it really takes to do this in the auto sector. Yeah. Uh, talking to CEOs of food and agriculture companies about why it's so hard and, and why, what could be done to make it easier and to move to nature-based solutions in agriculture or to uh, move to hydrogen-based nitrogen production to be able to provide fertilizers in a, in a closer to net zero kind of way. I, my experience is you just try to find people who have different perspectives than you do and you have to go with the mindset, not that you're there to tell them something, but you're there to learn from them. And of course, oftentimes they want to learn from me as well. So often it's a two-way dialogue and hopefully I'm providing some value back. To me, that sort of connectivity that we get to make 
as leaders, talking to leaders, but from different vantage points, I think makes it a richer experience and a faster learning curve for all of us. And has there been any one finding or factoid that has really surprised you, sort of knocked you off your feet? The first time the team came to me and said, you could make a net zero car for 500 euros, I literally didn't believe them. I said, it cannot be true. Yeah, and then I had them take me through like the whole analysis. And then when they walk you through, I said, wow. And I never thought about that. Or um, Sven Tora, the CEO of Yara, was describing to me that you could have the nitrogen in a loaf of bread. It's 30% of the carbon content of making a loaf of bread. You could, for a penny, take that 30% to zero, which sounds like, okay, who wouldn't pay a penny for a loaf of bread that was 30% less carbon in the, in the making of it? But actually, when you go through, well, how will the, will the farmer who's often doesn't have much income be ready to pay more for the nitrogen? Will the company buying the wheat from the farmer be ready to pay more when that wheat's all going to get blended with other wheat? So how will the end producer of the bread know that it's at zero? And, and how will the, the baker, whether it's a big company or a little one, market bread that has much less carbon content in it to make it relevant to consumers? So what seems like an obvious statement, like who wouldn't pay a penny? for a loaf of bread that had that much less carbon. When you look at it, you realize just how complex this whole uh, supply chain situation is that we're gonna have to work through. So I think stories like that have really stuck with me, both in the sense of the opportunity, we can go further than we think, and in the sense of the challenge of what it's gonna take to make it work. What else gets you excited about the opportunity to tackle the climate uh, when you think about what's really possible? What gets me excited is how many great people are genuinely engaged on it and I think deeply committed. I realize there's a lot of cynicism in the world about how much do leaders care, what are they ready to do. I feel much less cynicism about that than others, but I also am very aware of just how hard it is. What the world underestimates is how complex these issues are to tackle and and, um, and confuses the difficulty for people don't care. I think a lot of people care. That's energizing. There's tons of work to be done to actually make it real. Say everything goes to plan. Uh, in the case of supply chain, what could we see? What's the before and after that might be different? We will have, whether it's in steel or agriculture, much more of a move, probably not complete by 2040, okay. to core upstream sectors producing with much less carbon, meaning many more nature-based solutions in agriculture, regenerative agriculture practices, ways to make more hydrogen-based nitrogen where we still need nitrogen as a fertilizer, more hydrogen-based steel production. We will have it traced all the way through supply chains so the end producers will know whether they're really getting low or zero emission carbon in the raw materials that they're buying, and they'll be ready to pay a premium for it. We'll have it traceable all the way to the store shelf or the auto dealership uh, so that consumers know what they're getting. We'll have increasing standards, but done in a way where there's more of a partnership between government and business so that we are stretching ourselves, but we're doing it in a way that still fosters strong economies and jobs and growth and the things that we need. And ideally, though the jury's out whether we'll get there, we'll start to have really good carbon pricing and protection mechanisms for companies that make these hard investments so that so that they are able to be strong and vibrant businesses and not feel like they're losing out to companies that don't take these issues as seriously. And every one of those things I just named is hard. None of them are easy. And, and if we had more time, I could list 10 more. 
But the, but the truth is, I think they're all in the realm of the doable if we put our minds to it. You recently gave the commencement speech at your alma mater at uh, University of Michigan, and you talked about how you graduated during the recession and that the world seemed sort of frozen in time. I imagine there's a, a lot of things that uh, you faced that you didn't imagine you'd be facing that day when you graduated from college uh, when you were 21 years old. If you could, what advice would you give to that 21-year-old man today? I would say three things. The first is that critical thinking skills are even more important uh, today than they were back then. That, 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 of course, you come out of college with a lot of knowledge, but what matters less is the knowledge that you have than your ability to think critically about issues and continue to learn and to grow and to build new skills over time. And that, you know, you can feel really proud of all you've learned in the college education. That's something to feel great about. But if you think that that means your education is done, you're sorely uh, mistaken. The second is that it's all about the ability to work in teams. Of course, you want to be a strong individual contributor. Each of us should be looking to put in more than we get back in life and in our jobs. But that at the end of the day, the real progress is made in teams and particularly more diverse teams where you bring people with different backgrounds and perspectives and geographies, ideally, uh, that you go further, faster, you have more challenge, more critical thinking collectively and the ability to push things forward. And the third is the incredible role of technology and how rapidly it's reshaping the world and that all of us, whether we have a technical degree or a non-technical degree, have to build some degree of comfort with technology, how it applies to the areas that we're focusing our own careers on and, and how we use it to make a positive contribution in the world and build our own skills over time. And whether that's AI or digital or synthetic biology, depending if you're in the life sciences world, or what will in not so many years we'll be talking about quantum computing and the potential that it offers, like we all have to recognize how much technology is marching on in a fast and relentless way. And if we're going to contribute to our fullest potential, we have to have some understanding of that and some comfort with it. Mm -hmm. And do you think that that young man would uh, think he would be so involved in things like the climate? Or was that even a, a twinkle in his eye? Not only was it not a twinkle in his eye, it wasn't a twinkle in the CEO's eye five years ago. <laughs> if you'd have told me that now, in 2020, back in 2016, that in 2021, I would be spending as much of my time on climate, on COVID-19, and on racial equity and justice topics, I'm not sure I would have thought it even then. I think for all of us, the capacity to learn and evolve, it doesn't matter how senior you are. I'm sure the the me of 2026 will be doing things that I don't imagine yes. doing today in 2021, even though I'm a pretty old and you know experienced person. I think that mindset of it's not about knowing exactly the, where the road will take you. It's about having a sense of exploration and a commitment to finding ways that you can make a distinctive difference. And each one of us can, but what that means for each one of us is a different thing. And we have to therefore be open-minded and have a little bit of a sense of exploration and curiosity and creativity and spark, even as we get very deep into our careers to figure out what next might be and how we can step up and try to make a difference in different ways. So in times when you need that sense of exploration, are there prompts that you give yourself or questions that help you dig more? What prompts me to explore is being surrounded by really smart people who feel comfortable challenging me. Yeah. In each of those topics, it's not that I thought what I could do all by myself. It normally was someone who was uncomfortable that I wasn't doing enough. Yeah. 
sitting me down and saying, here's why we could do more here. I'm privileged to be a part of such an amazing team at BCG. So where we put our energies, we can really have impact. But but where I put my own energies, sometimes you you just don't see where the potential is. And so in each of those areas and others, I've been fortunate to have people who felt comfortable enough to say, Rich, I think you're missing this. Like we could do something here. We need to do more. I need some support. You need to put some time into it, but we could do more. And you can't choose everything. But if you keep an open mind to it, you often uncover places you can contribute more than you may have expected. What's important to creating that environment where people feel comfortable posing those challenges or saying, hey, I I really think we need to go in this or that direction. How do you create that environment? I think as a leader, you send signals all the time about whether you really want to listen or you kind of want to have people reinforce what you already believe. And it often happens in very subtle ways, not just what you say, the facial expressions, who you give time to, what you come back to from a conversation at the end of it. And, And I try, I'm sure very imperfectly, but I try to constantly send off a signal that I expect to be challenged. I want to be challenged. When I screw up, I'll say I screwed up. At least I hope I people perceive that. And that that we are a stronger organization when everyone, and most importantly, including the leader, starts with a mindset of all the things are probably not doing as well as they could, rather than believing they're in some exalted, exalted position and they have it figured out. And, and I think we all have a choice every day of how we engage with the people around us and what signals we send. And then people take their cues, particularly related to the CEO. People are watching all the time to see, well, did the person who raised that challenging issue get uh, the promotion or not? Did that person get seem to get recognized and rewarded or sort of shunned a little bit and left out? Did, did, did we come back to places where people disagreed and do something different? Or was it just a talk talk exercise and they kept doing whatever they were doing to begin with? People are looking for signals all the time and CEOs are sending those signals and other leaders, not just CEOs, whether they intend to or not. So you better be aware of the signals you're sending. And I try, I'm, you know, doesn't mean you get it right every time, but you try your best. So you've worked at BCG for 33 years. It'll be 33 in August. How have you changed as a leader in that time? I think I spend more time thinking about what are the skills I don't have and how do I build teams around me that the older I get, the more self-aware I become of both what I think I'm pretty good at. I wouldn't be in this role if I weren't good at some things. Yes. You, you can't walk around believing, oh, I'm not good at anything. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. I believe I have good skills on many dimensions. But you then try to be sort of self-aware. Sometimes it's self-aware about knowledge you don't have. How do you get people who know more? Sometimes it's just skills, people who are particularly good at doing things that are different than you and making sure that I build teams that are more complementary to me than reinforcing. I think sometimes leaders can get in a trap. They they feel so self-confident about what they do well that they end up attracting people who more or less bring a sort of similar mindset and skill set. And that can be good because if, they prob- if they're in those roles, they probably are very good, but it's probably not as strong as their teams could be if they found people who were different from them. So I think I'm much more cognizant of that probably than I was earlier in my career. There's a a great quote that I read from you where you said that technology is important, but how we team is how we'll make change. What needs to be in place for really great teaming? Uh, What should people be on the lookout for? Well, the start of teaming is is great people, but not great people who are all like each other, but great people who are different from each other. So your responsibility of a leader, of course, is to have a very high bar on talent and to really select for people that are 
extraordinary individuals, but to make sure that it, when you think about it, you're recognizing that the sum of the group needs to be greater than any individual. So because if you don't bring different perspectives into the room, which includes things like gender and ethnicity and 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 different backgrounds in different geographies, but it also means different life experiences, different kinds of skills, different cognitive approaches to, to tackling problems. It is unlikely you will get nearly as far as if you do bring that kind of diversity together. The second thing is to make sure you create an environment where people believe they will be judged ultimately on how the team performs and how they've contributed to other success not just about optimizing their own individual success. There are lots of ways to do that. It's the ways you sum up a meeting, who you recognize in the moment, as well as measures around how you pay or what you give bonus and rewards on or, or who you promote. You have ways big and small to constantly reinforce. It is about the team. It's about us being ready to challenge each other. But at the end of the day, we also support each other and we, and we celebrate as much other success as, as we do our own. And I think the third is about a sense of purpose and aspiration. You know, we are all motivated by why are we really here? What are we trying to achieve? And, and I think as leaders, you can sign and kind of set the bar really high or set it as, you know, getting a little better every year is good enough. And, and I think that figuring out both how high to set the bar, but on which dimensions matters a great deal. So those would probably be the three things I'd focus most on. So BCG has one of the largest boards of directors of any company in the world. What is your approach to input and building consensus? Well, so first, you're right. BCG, every MDP, managing director and partner at BCG is also a member of the board, which means we're up around 1,500 right now <laughs> uh, and, and uh, unique, unique in our world because it really is a one managing director and partner, one vote model. I tell that every time I do an orientation with our new group of MDPs. Uh, which are now like 100 every six months or so, I start by saying, you know, each one of your vote is worth the same as mine. I've been here 33 years. It doesn't matter. And I think that I, I think you do a lot to try to create environments where people speak up. We, we do a lot of things around testing when we're making big changes, doing straw polls, doing roadshows around the world, going slower than you theoretically could to get to the answer in order to provide more venues for listening having people see that when they give input, it really does matter, that we've made very conscious choices, not necessarily the choices I would have made, not choices I thought were horrible either. I have a responsibility to, to make sure that we're not doing things that could really hurt the firm. But in most cases, you know, you have multiple paths you can go that are reasonable. And in listening and engaging, you create an environment where people feel that's not just that they're senior leaders in a great company, but they also have an ownership responsibility and a stewardship. I start every orientation with our senior team of there's a legacy responsibility that came from our founder, Bruce Henderson, who built BCG from start and gave virtually the entire firm away to the employees and to the partners when he retired, that none of us did that. And each of us had the privilege to inherit our little part of BCG. And each of us have a legacy responsibility to leave it better than we found it when it's our turn to move on, whenever that is, if it's, you know, after a few years or after decades, and, and I think keeping in mind that legacy responsibility, which starts with purpose and values and leading with integrity, but also is the responsibility to try to contribute and, and make things better 
I think I think you try to impart that and create an environment where people sense you really do want to listen to them. Mm-hmm. So you've talked about being a custodian for BCG. Uh, it occurs to me that that's a way that people can think about uh, maybe teaming in a stronger way, asking themselves, how am I contributing to the bigger picture? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, I, I think it's important to step back from time to time and say, what am I about and why am I here and what is my purpose and how I want to contribute? But I think we also have to give ourselves a little bit of room. I think I, I talk to young people sometimes who've set such a high bar for where, you know, what they expect to do to have big impact in the world, you know, at that moment in time. And I often say to them that that the most important thing that you do, particularly early in your career, is you put yourself on a learning journey and getting different experiences and trying to lead a life with integrity, with values, with principles, and to be open to new experiences and to grow. And often the ways we discover that will contribute over time aren't necessarily what we expect. And so you have to keep yourself open to experiences and not think we can be overly directive. Mm-hmm. The, the story of our lives is very easy to write looking backward, you know, because, and, and we can believe that uh, it was always destined to be that way. But one of the wisest things my mother ever said to me is when we look backward at our lives, we think it's often more destined than it is. Life is a series of small choices and big choices that we take over and over again and things beyond our control. And a lot of the way you live a good life is you you take those experiences in the moment and, and you make the most of them and you try. And when you don't do it as well as you wish you did, you learn from it and you try to do better the next time. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's an important part of trying to lead a productive and strong contribution life. Mm-hmm. Was there on your learning journey one experience that shaped you more than another? I don't feel like there's been one seminal experience for me that was the shaping one. I, I feel almost the opposite. I would say I probably grew the most through two or three, maybe four super hard experiences that I've had in my job where I lost confidence in it or I didn't feel like I did it as well as I could or or I really questioned whether I fit, you know. And I think those sort of very scarring experiences, they force you to step back as a person and say, at the end of it, you know, okay, why did I let this happen? Why was I so hard on myself? Why did I not reach out for help earlier? I think the reflections from those experiences have been particularly shaping for me, but I don't think there was any one experience that caused me to be on the road to being a CEO late in my career or being involved in climate or, or getting involved in other topics. I think those are more just growing growing as a human being and trying to learn and evolve as you, as you move through a career and as you move through life with family and kids and all the experiences that we all have. Is there a, a book that you recommend, something that really changed your mind or got you thinking? Okay, I can't give you one. I will give you three, but I'll do it fast. First, I have to start with Klaus and what he's written about stakeholder capitalism, both articles and books. It's had such an impact in the world and it's so thoughtful. So I I don't want to minimize the role that Klaus has had in shaping the thinking of big stretches of the world about how we all work together. I think Give and Take by Adam Grant, a professor at Wharton, is an incredible book. It's the one I probably, in my own mental frameworks, refer to the most about how do you create organizations that are more centered around givers than takers, and how do you spot the various individuals and what their profiles are, how do you shape organizations, um, and and what does it do to strengthen organizations when you can create a giving mindset, a high-performance culture, 
still want performance, but with a giving mindset. And then I think that the latest book my colleagues at BCG have written, Beyond Great, which is really looking not backwards, but at the decade ahead. And what are the various dimensions, whether it's what digital and AI are doing, whether it's the uh, total societal impact we need to have, not just a total shareholder value framework, wh whether it's about how to create more dynamic, more agile organizations. The stories in it are just wonderful. It's so nice to hear these sort of theoretical concepts, but told through the lens of companies that are actually operating that way and what it's meant to their businesses, the impact they have, the ability to change, the kind of environments they create for their people. So those those three would probably be the ones that I would highlight. And with these books, is there something that uh, you know changed how you lead or, or how you work with teams? Well, give and take, which I read very early in my tenure as CEO, it was the only night we had book club at the executive committee. I We were sitting in Singapore at an executive committee and I said, okay, I gave it to him two months at a time. I said, we're all gonna read this book and we're gonna talk about, are we a giving organization? What would it mean? Where do we come up short? How would we operate differently? And I think taking a book, and by the way, there are other great books, so, but that whole idea of taking a book, talking about it as a leadership team, talking about what it meant for us as individuals, but also what it meant for our, um, for our, how we would lead the organization. I thought that was quite shaping. I've ended up giving that book to every managing director and partner. It's one of the, maybe the only one that I give them because I do think this mindset of how are we acting as givers and what does it mean to be high performance and being a giver? Because some giver organizations are just lower performing. Everybody's focused on helping each other, but the organization itself isn't growing and evolving at the rate it needs to. BCG is an exceptionally performing place like over decades and recently. So we have a very high bar on the impact we make in the world and our clients, our ability to create opportunities for the next generation. But if we can do that with a giver mindset, we are so much stronger. So for me, that was probably the most shaping of the language that I now use in so many discussions with people. So we've covered a lot in this chat. Is there anything else that you would like to add? This conversation is focused particularly on climate and then leadership more generally, which are both extremely important. I just want to highlight we're in the middle of a pandemic where there's extraordinary suffering going on. And now is a moment in time, particularly as some countries, particularly in the wealthier parts of the world, are, are either moving beyond the pandemic phase or will do it relatively soon. How we step up collectively to get billions of vaccine doses produced and distributed around the world as fast as possible is not just a moral obligation, it's in the interest of our global health. It's in support of rebuilding a global economy that can be a just economy for everyone. And we have to be careful, particularly as some parts of the world start to move beyond this phase, that we don't lose sight of how many people are suffering and how much work we have to do as a global community. Because until all of us move beyond it, we're not living up to our, our moral and societal responsibilities. That was Rich Lesser. Before we go, don't forget Meet the Leader's sister podcast, Radio Davos, helping you understand the biggest problems of our time. Find the latest episode of that and Meet the Leader on wef.ch slash podcasts. My thanks go out to Gareth Nolan and Robin Pomeroy for all of their help on Meet the Leader. And thanks, too, to our guest, Rich Lesser. My thanks go out to you as well for listening. Please take a moment to rate and review us or subscribe on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. 
That's it for me. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.